Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Climbing Consulting. In this one, I chat with Peter Reed, founder and CEO at MSQ. Pete started his career in consulting, firstly with an entrepreneurial boutique that had arrived in the UK from the US, and then went on to a successful four-year stint at McKinsey. Having seen consulting and the consulting life wasn't for him, he changed direction, and having found Media Square, which saw him cut his teeth in the relatively new world of digital marketing as it was then, he co-founded MSQ, seeing a gap and a need from brands for smarter and simpler agency relationships. Fast forward to today, and he is now the global CEO of MSQ, overseeing the UK's fastest growing marketing network with 1,200 employees working across 13 global offices. In this conversation, we discuss a whole host of fascinating topics. We talk about Pete's early career, that time in consulting, and the key lessons that he learned from McKinsey. We explore actually what led Pete to co-found MSQ, and how MSQ's acquisition strategy has turbocharged their growth, both here in the UK and overseas. 
we explore culture and actually how you build a culture as you grow a business through acquisition and how you maintain that at both a group level and within the individual agencies underneath that. And finally, we talk about sustainability, diversity, and inclusion. Key passions for Pete, for MSQ, and we explore Pete's advice for actually how you can approach these in your organization to deliver real change. This was a hugely wide-ranging conversation and really does have something in it for everyone. Whether you are just starting out in consulting and you want to find out about the different types of firms you could work at, or maybe you are at the other end, you're leading a consultancy, and you're thinking about moving into the world of M&A and what that means for your firm, there is going to be something in here for you. So with the intro done, all that's left to say is please enjoy today's conversation with Peter Reid. Pete, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to see you. I'm looking forward to this. I know we caught up just before Christmas at your office. We've just had a great lunch, and I know we're going to touch on some of the topics we spoke about over that today. But for those who don't know you, it would be great if you could kick off with a bit of your background and and how you got to the role you've got at MSQ and what you're doing today. Sure. So I think those who do probably know more about kind of McKinsey and MSQ, but actually I started off very much in a more entrepreneurial setting. So after university, I joined the startup office of a medium-sized US consultancy, which was called Sibson at the time, very focused in kind of strategic human capital for want of an American uh, phrase. So, But that was great experience for three, four years in terms of there were four of us when we started. So probably just got more exposure than I might've done somewhere else where grew it to about 24, 25 people in two, three years, but then decided to go to business school. So had a great year at INSEAD, actually mainly in Singapore, because I'd spent some time in France um, beforehand. And then the last four months in uh, the, in the forest of Fontainebleau, just outside Paris. And there actually I, I got while at uh, INSEAD, got the job at McKinsey in London. So then spent the sort of really best part of four years, very much focused on the media and telecom space. And then as that time kind of evolved, actually, particularly in the media PE space. So that kind of got me particularly interested in the sort of turnaround transformation sort of type work. And then ultimately, which we kind of might come back to a bit later on, I sort of decided I wanted to get a proper job and then hence moved into a business called Media Square, which is kind of what uh, then became MSQ. Well, there is a lot for us to cover there, Pete. Not least what strategic human capital actually means. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'm still working on it. <laughs> I do find the same after over 10 years in consulting. When someone says, what does a consultant do? I, I don't yet have the elevator pitch, but I'm not sure if anyone does. But that is quite a start. And I think we could start right at the beginning, but I almost, to your point, you teed me up for it around McKinsey. I, just because obviously the, the brand name is so well known. I'd, I'd be really keen to start there because I think we're going to come on to your sort of entrepreneurial side when we move into the, the MSQ journey. And I, I guess I'd be really fascinated you know, how you found your time there and almost looking back, what were some of those key skills McKinsey gave you? Because you obviously had a great consulting background with, was it Simpsons you called yeah. so you said? So, you know, you could have gone anywhere in consulting after that. But McKinsey obviously has quite an aura and name. Actually, for anyone listening who's thinking about doing that as a career step, what were the biggest things you learned there? What was it that you still sort of carry today and helps you today? No, it's a really interesting question. I, I, I guess just to put it in a bit of context, I think what I was interested in, what 
when I, I took the job, ultimately, probably because of the brand and the, the development opportunities down the line, being completely honest. But what I, what I found when I first joined there was actually the experience was slightly different than I expected. And it is very much, a, a, it's a firm of multiple cultures. There's not a kind of unitary culture, although there's sort of, there are things that run across it and, and definitely some consistent threads. But it's really about a mixture of cultures by office and by even individuals within the office. And that wasn't particularly what I was expecting, but it kind of really helped me navigate through kind of almost a coping mechanism through the time and meant that actually, you know, I did genuinely really enjoy it whilst also learning stuff. And and the other thing that might surprise people, and again, this is different a little bit by office within the firm, was actually it's kind of much more fun than you might expect. Uh, you know, it can be re- relentless, but actually there is quite a big emphasis on, you know, not only community, but also getting people together out of work, both sort of training and, and sort of beyond training sort of external trips and stuff. So those pieces are a bit of a surprise, but to your kind of main question, and I, I guess probably the biggest thing, maybe not a great surprise that I learned was probably actually around client centricity. I think it's a great point across all professional services firms. But if I if I look across even MSQ now, I think that if there's something that people could really benefit from having spent some time there, it is that kind of client first focus, but also all the things that go with that, including attention to detail might be an overplayed concept sometimes, but kind of having that standard set, I think has been hugely valuable and the kind of haven't been able to completely kind of get rid of finding like spaces in PowerPoints and uh, and, and wow. things like that. But then I, I suppose alongside that, it, really this sort of skill that's now been most transferable is the fact that you, you do kind of you know, hone your ability to kind of cut through a bunch of data, a bunch of themes, a bunch of interviews, and really kind of pick up on the what are the key topics or what are the key implications. And I found that in terms of kind of working with clients, which I still do occasionally, but in particular, actually just, just general management, just being able to cut through the noise and then focus on the key bits. It's an obvious skill in a way, but I think it's still hugely valuable overall. And, and, and I guess, you know, again, sometimes sort of maybe less expected. I think there's a huge amount of focus within McKinsey on kind of managing people, both within your own teams and managing clients. How do you motivate people and that kind of thing? And I've definitely taken away lots of pieces from there as well. That's a, a great roundup. And, and yes, I think if you've ever been a consultant, you can never look at a PowerPoint the same. No, you always no. notice. My, my, it drives my team crazy when I, the only thing I notice is a misaligned box on what is otherwise a very beautiful and informative PowerPoint presentation. Absolutely. And my, my thing I'm trying to let go of is uh, that sort of when you do have an abbreviation of IE, you put a comma after the, the second full stop, which is definitely a bridge too far. <laughs> well, we maybe for after this, we'll talk all about our consulting isms because, yeah, I think our listeners are probably feeling the same. And I, I think they're fascinating actually to, to hear you around, particularly around the culture side and also the fun because you're, you're right. You know, I, I haven't worked at McKinsey, but the sense you get is it's long hours, hard work, but you get you get a good badge at the end of it. And hearing that fun piece is quite interesting. I just curious how you mentioned you learned to navigate those cultures is that something given you know your previous role in your time at business school like you'd kind of been trained to do or was that a bit of a baptism of fire how did you approach that because like you say you hear about McKinsey but London must be very different to Paris and even what you said in practices are so different how did you navigate that yeah it's good I, I think just my first experience was actually really helpful in terms of just number one really helping you think about what did I enjoy about sort of almost day-to-day working and what did I want out of a career in terms of more practical rather than a kind of long-term strategic goal point of view. And, you know, even at, at Sipson, it's probably the place where, you know, I was 
sort of talking to one of my kids the other day that, you know, I definitely had to do the odd all-nighter there, which I'm quite glad I don't do now. But I guess it also made me realise that I'm sort of, you know, I'm continue to work hard and sometimes wish it had slightly less hard, but I didn't want to be working 100-hour weeks, you know, seven days a week as a sort of an engagement manager or later on in a career. And what was pretty key to me in the McKinsey's, you're going to have to work hard, but actually the choices you make about the sectors you work with, the partners you work with, you know, as in any organization, there are different partners who probably value the the, the kind of work ethic and the output kind of, you know, more than the kind of the, the balance. And similarly, that sort of, they're also alongside that, there were kind of specific strategies when you finished a really intense engagement, because sometimes they were, make sure you kind of take a little bit of time off in between and ideally book two days off in the middle of the following week because then you've got two weeks when you probably can't be staff on engagement. <laughs> um, so so there were, it was probably a combination of just having the right, uh, for me, the right approach on the way in and then similarly just knowing what little things you did to just to kind of make your kind of experience kind of on a on a practical level more more valuable. But but as I say, for me, it's always very much a horses for courses because there are other people who worked in the retail practice which was very much known for, you know, sort of great impacts, great clients, but it was full on. And, you know, a lot of people really valued that, did that for a few years and got great experience from doing so. I think some great advice, not least the book the day off or two days off the week after. So you, you in effect, get two weeks on the bench, um, which is always nice. And and I think that balance is really important. I know it, it, my career in consulting was quite short and for a similar reason to what you suggest is I, I probably pushed it too hard too quickly because as a young 20-something, you want to make partner and you, you figure you should just blast it to get there. And you quickly find out that you can't do that for 10 years or s- some people can. But yeah. I think to your point, that kind of balance and finding the partners that resonate you, with you is probably something really useful for others listening as well. And this might be a nice segue into to MSQ because I, I know that McKinsey was the t- sort of the, the first introduction to brand strategy and work that we would now consider marketing. But I think at the time you were doing under a sort of strategy and a, a consulting lens. And I, I'd be really keen to, I guess, hear about some of those sort of early projects. And maybe this is taking us back to bring us forward, but obviously now running MSQ, you and your team have done hundreds of these projects. It's probably slightly different. Actually, what was it about those early projects that you kind of learned? And also, what did you carry forward that maybe now you've changed and actually as a world, we look at that sort of branding quite differently? Yeah, I, I think the, the, the probably the biggest uh, piece I found, um, you know, did a lot of as you say, maybe strategic marketing and organizational pieces. And they were kind of interesting and, you know, actually sort of learning a little bit about where you can flex things and where you perhaps trying to be too consistent can be a mistake, like kind of pricing and things like that. But actually the bit that I found really interesting for the future was when you got into things that were more into brand and sort of that end of marketing, um, where I'm kind of obviously much more involved now. And what I found interesting was the fact that there was absolutely a kind of place in data and sort of, you know, certainly at the time McKinsey were up there with anyone in terms of producing the kind of the data-driven insight-centric strategy, the, the most perfect sort of advanced segmentation strategy. But then when you went into sort of starting to talk about brand and then particularly how it engaging people, it was still the same kind of more left brain style approach. And even though I've, I, I've learned a lot more about that now, and I was possibly guilty of some of the same things, you could sort of see, particularly when you then had other experts in the room and people were from the agency world, that it didn't actually kind of, you know, have that real emotional connection with consumers and with clients etc that you kind of needed so even when it's at McKinsey I sometimes felt that the kind of fees for those type of marketing engagements we were being charged was probably not really going to be justified by the outcomes coming on the back of it 
Interestingly, now you kind of have the other problem where I think oftentimes you're able to deliver a much more actionable and possibly better product, but you're not going to be able to charge anything like the same amount of money for it. Yes, it's, it is the the age old challenge of perceived value. And, and I guess also yeah, having the McKinsey logo helps with fee charge out rates as well, doesn't it? 100%. And who you're talking to in the organization as well. Oh, definitely. Well, I think Pete, that gives us a nice bridge to actually go on to, to the MSQ journey. And, and as you know, you know, we've had Ben on this show your, your colleague who, who leads MMT and Ben gave me the story after he joined and obviously we focused a lot on the, the MMT journey but maybe it's like Star Wars maybe it's not we've got a prequel and then we've also got the, you know the sequel and, and where it's gone since then and I, I'd love to start that piece by getting the journey after McKinsey so actually how did you know the media square opportunity come about and take us on that journey up to that be heard acquisition and then we can dive into the details absolutely yeah so really i was i found myself uh, which i think probably a lot of people in consulting kind of reached that point i was sort of three years three and a half years into the journey i'd been sort of project manager for sort of probably three years of that sort of time and i was kind of on the one hand thinking about did i want to stay and you know be a partner sort of senior partner in sort of mckinsey or did i want to do something different there were probably kind of i guess two things for me that firstly i looked at the kind of the forward at least three or four years and I wasn't sure actually the partner experience was all it was kind of kind of cracked up to be I could see the real benefits of when you got to director level and senior partner level but that was potentially eight nine years of um, of kind of doing the same thing and kind of hard work to kind of get there and that was quite an important realization and I think you know personally I'd always advise people just actually sort of you know step back a bit and think about you know I'm not yes it may be the normal career track but is that absolutely what you want to do is it right is it kind of right for you so I kind of had a bit, little bit of that and uh, as we were talking earlier I probably also found that one of the things I'd loved in in consulting was the variety and I still had variety in terms of projects but I did feel increasingly I was doing similar things kind of over again so that also led me to think that that actually I really wanted to try something that was not kind of consulting or a continuation of consulting and was you know as I sort of jokingly said earlier a real job but actually more in the kind of line management and etc and I, I suppose probably at the time that I probably knew more about what I didn't want to do so say I knew at that point I didn't really want to kind of stay the course at McKinsey and frankly being more focused on pure media was probably a harder thing to do anyway but then secondarily I kind of the, the what a lot of people probably the classic sort of move out of McKinsey is to go and do corporate strategy for a big organization for three years and for me that was the you know having advised a lot of those teams that was probably my definition of hell versus even staying kind of where I was so I started looking for something that was much more at the more entrepreneurial end and interestingly I think that sort of time at Sibson was probably quite influential in uh, in some of that and as it turned out there was a guy called Roger Parry who um, sort of had done a lot in the sort of media on the more entrepreneurial side but also sort of chairman of FTSE 100 companies at the time Johnson Press shows how far things have changed and now sort of chairman of YouGov and and he was um, really embarking on a bit of a kind of transformation program at Media Square, and asked me to come and join him to to help him do so. That was sort of back in 2007. And I guess, you know, in that time, I didn't plan to sort of spend, you know, sort of certainly not sort of 17 years sort of doing a similar thing. But I really quickly could see that while there were a few things in other parts of the, the group that needed to change, you could see there were these these agencies that had real potential, albeit that, that they also needed a bit of rebuilding. And a lot of them had been second or third generation management having kind of sold into the business. 
but you, you felt actually there was something to really build on. And, and probably most importantly, um, I kind of really liked the people. And, you know, even going back to that time, and we maybe talk about it a bit more, we had people who were, you know, there was a nice culture to it, but also most of them were instinctively collaborative. And that felt like you had a really big building block to, um, to actually kind of build behind it. I really like the frame, and, and we will come back to culture, Pete, because I, I think to your point around enjoying consulting, wanting to do some you know, a proper job, but also have that variety, I, it feels like you stumbled across the perfect role in that you were still consulting with these different agency brands within, within Media Square, but like you say, you had kind of the line role as well. And I think, because this is in, very interesting for our consulting listeners, also anyone from a marketing sphere who's listening, but you mentioned around actually these agency brands, you could see potential, they needed some change. What were the commonalities? Because I think in any services business, there are sort of certain levers you can pull to make those improvements. In those early days, what were the things that you were fixing to help get those agencies back on track? I think sometimes it's hard to generalize, but actually, in many cases, there really are lessons that you can you can learn and, and apply. And, you know, while they were at different stages of development, etc. cetera. In, in, in simple terms, in most cases, it was starting to be very clear on what is the right proposition for that individual agency or capability. And then secondarily, making sure you had the right team at the top. So particularly, you're kind of, you know, getting the right, particularly CEO, MD in place, and then getting the right creative directors, planning directors, and getting them all aligned, A, behind the proposition, but also the strategy. Those were probably the two, the two biggest things. And then kind of on a maybe a more practical level i think you know most businesses and professional services uh, sort of but certainly in agencies if there's either 10 or 11 of you or you've got one client who's 80% of the business it's not a great place to kind of you know be starting from particularly the latter so there was then a little bit of kind of structural stuff you know which you can't always fix over time to really kind of try and add some scale and a bit more sort of structure to the or substance to the agencies as well a lot to dig into there and again because i'm thinking you know we're going to talk about sort of acquisitions shortly but you know we talked over lunch the the agency world has always been i think a bit ahead of the consulting world but the consulting world is is catching up with this and that piece of offering and leadership team are fascinating to an extent of people will think they know what their offering is but it's only when you actually grill it that you you really dig in but also i think leadership team is quite a challenge because Particularly if you, know, you mentioned third generation management, but I assume it's the same throughout of the leadership team is such an important part of an agency or consulting firm. How did you or how do you know, sort of approach that balance? You know, chicken and egg, what comes first? Do you shape the agency offering and then find the leadership team to deliver it? Do you have to get the leadership team and then find the offering? Because that feels so intrinsic to success. If you haven't got a right offering and a right leadership team, I don't, I don't think you're going to go anywhere. I, I think that's right. And I, I, you know, I will give you a sort of a response, but it, it is really an iterative process around it. But what I think we tried to do was at least not try and nail the proposition, but be clear on what the ag- what the agency was about and the space that it operated in. Um, because at the time, and I think it was happening quite a lot across the space, so there was probably a little bit too much about trying to be all things to all men or all people. And that just that didn't feel quite the right sort of solution. And so we'd almost try and be clear, actually, are we focusing here on digitally enabled CRM? you know, or are we trying to be an integrated agency? Then I think you really had to get the kind of leadership in place and it had to be, you know, they had to really develop the actual proposition and kind of ultimately own the proposition. Otherwise, you were, it probably wasn't going to work either. Yeah, well, and it's, it's a great point. I think that that niche piece, you know, because time and again, and it's, it's the same in agency land as it is in consulting, as, as you know, that there feels like an upside to saying we are all thing to all men and women and people, you know, that we can do everything shop, whereas actually 
as you you know as MSQ shown and and other businesses that that niche is important and take me on the journey because obviously as we were chatting about over lunch I know a bit about and my listeners who if you haven't you should go back and listen to Ben's episode will have heard some of the Be Hurt story but you started with a number of agencies and I understand actually there was a combination of organic growth and inorganic and I'd be interested at kind of what point organic was the larger what point inorganic and equally the decision to to flip that if there was a decision yeah no it absolutely i think i think there was and there were definitely periods of focusing on on both i mean you know ultimately and really going back to sort of 2011 2012 when we actually founded properly msq took the business private with with those agencies we were much more focused on the sort of marketing side of the house rather than now our kind of blend between a really kind of tech and creativity and so in that kind of of context, what we, we thought, well, actually, there really was here still an opportunity to, over time, challenge the holding companies. And we knew we had a lot more work to be done. It wasn't an overnight uh, piece. But one of the real advantages we had was that we were all fused in digital and we didn't have a big consumer broadcast ad agency. And it was relatively clear, albeit it wasn't going to change overnight, that kind of having that more digital mindset, whether it was in PR, frankly, or in kind of CRM or in in sort of big ticket advertising uh, was going to become an advantage, even if it wasn't necessarily an advantage in sort of January 2012. So that was the sort of premise. And as I say, for the first, probably really the first sort of six or seven years, the main focus was, was on organic growth. And I always stay and continue to say that the best way to grow any agency, and I think broadly any professional service firm, is still organic growth on the back of particularly new business and new clients. And so that's always been, been our mantra. But in those early days, it was almost that actually you needed to kind of create the right platform and you needed either the real opportunities was to, as I say, prove the proposition, get the management team in place, get the strategy right, and then build that kind of sense of cohesion kind of across the group. And from a sort of more subsequently from a pure value creation point of view, it was reasonably clear we actually kind of got to a point where we had a decent level of revenue, but actually the margin probably was slightly lacking to where it should be. And we, we kind of, our first view was to kind of ultimately create value in the business, the simplest straight line to doing that was to focus on actual mix between organic growth and sort of, you know, really margin improvement through mainly through growth, frankly, by building scale, but also with a little bit of operational improvement on the back of it. And we were we were quite lucky in the times in terms of that we, we actually had a quite a nice, we've always had quite a nice international footprint, even though it's, uh, you know, been relatively small. So we were able to kind of push into Asia because we already had the, the, the offices there to build on the back of it and similar in the US. So actually pretty early on we were able to move into China uh, and sort of really grew a presence there sort of similarly in Singapore and to some extent in New York so it wasn't just about organic growth in the UK winning clients it was also kind of organic growth on the back of clients in in other areas as well so that was really the prime way of operating until sort of 2017 2018 albeit through that time you know we had you know we had done acquisitions probably as far back as 2009 from memory we really we bought two businesses and sold one business in between 2012 and 2019 so it wasn't a huge amount it was very much kind of secondary albeit that it laid the foundations for the future i guess really when we got to sort of 2018 2019 and we were bringing ldc in as a, a new investment partner what had become really clear was some of the stuff i said at the beginning was that you know whereas in 2012 not having a big consumer ad agency 
agency, but having digital skills was almost a disadvantage. You'll be, you could see the potential. The world had really come towards us and the business was in a much better state. So you really saw actually the opportunity was really to realize that kind of vision of becoming a, over, you know, three to five years, an alternative kind of holding company. And to do that, particularly you would need to build scale from where we were. And that's kind of both in the UK and internationally. So that was a kind of key piece. There was probably a little bit of a secondary piece. I'm not going to lie that kind of, you know, having more access to investment kind of probably helps and, and, and encourages you. But I think as a general rule, and there are no general rules this, that, you know, it's, you don't want to be trying to do a load of acquisitions while you're trying to sort of sort the house out. And in the same way of kind of, you know, merging or buying, sort of merging two businesses that are in trouble was, in my experience, is a difficult thing to do well. So there was a little bit about kind of getting getting that done. And, you know, the nice thing was that period between 2014, when we brought in the first private equity bond in 2019, even with the solely organic structure, we took the share price from 20p to 20 pounds. So it had a, a level of success kind of on the back of it, but we then realized kind of we wanted to go again. And without replaying too much of kind of Ben's um, sort of podcast, I mean, we throughout that period had lots of conversations. I'd known Ben for a, for a long time. Uh, and so we'd, we'd actually, probably every couple of years had some sort of conversation and paths have gone a different a different way but we were already kind of ready to kind of make that move and sort of what was perhaps surprising to me particularly when you put covid in the mix as well was that how quickly having bought a new private equity investor we were able to buy another public company that was roughly two-thirds of our size in lockdown and etc and that's probably a topic for another day well, I think you know, we'll, we'll see how we go today because, yeah, doing a deal that's two-thirds of your size in lockdown, getting everyone comfortable over Zoom is probably a whole nother conversation. I, I'm going to come on to some of the things you touched on there, Pete, but you dangled the carrot, so I've got to ask about it. That 20p to 20 pounds, I mean, that's yeah, that's a decent return on any spectrum of time. And you were saying that's sort of achieved in, was it five, five six yeah, years, give or take? Five years, yeah. And We've touched on a couple of the areas around proposition, around leadership team. I also appreciate I'm about to ask you something that is trying to simplify what's a whole load of things into a you know a small answer. But actually, what were the drivers that enabled that? Was there anything else that stood out? Because my, my math is failing me, but that's about a thousand times growth. Is that not? Some, that was about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah albeit yeah. from a small a small well, starting point. So it yeah, helps it, it helps in some ways, but a small stone gathers pace slowly when you roll it downhill usually. I mean, you mentioned also that sense of cohesion across the group. I mean, was it those three things that let you achieve that rapid, you know, that significant growth? Or was there anything else looking back that you're like, actually, that was one of the big unlocks? Because that's phenomenal growth for anyone. You just alluded to it. I think the only thing that didn't specifically talk about was actually by being a private business and then subsequently having private equity backing, I think made a massive difference to us. If I come back to sort of 2012, we needed to take a medium term view on, on these. And if, you know, if we'd have had quarterly targets, even though you're the bottom of aim, you probably don't have that anymore. It would have been a harder thing to do, but probably more fundamentally enabled us to actually create what we call the MSQ shareholder manager scheme, which in many ways I kind of, you know, I didn't at the time, but I sort of now feel was a bit ahead of its time when I hear like someone like Sorrell saying, oh, we've got to adopt the private equity view of incentivization. You know, that's broadly what we kind of, well, exactly what we put in place sort of back then. And what that did overnight was actually transform the type of people that we could talk to from a recruitment kind of point of view, not just from the value creation point of view, but being able to give people a sense of ownership and, and sort of, you know, sort of stake in the group was something particularly back then was very rare. 
And I think without that, I don't think we would have got the quality of people that we were able to get, which, you know, even then, you know, we were able to bring in some really high quality people, probably at times beyond my expectations. And I think that was a fundamental part of doing that. And then the kind of from a retention and motivation point of view, it also helped. Interesting. And just so I'm clear and for my listeners, that that share scheme, I mean, in essence, you're giving equity upside to those people. So like you say, it's, it, people who might have been, a, you know, you might not have been able to attract purely on salary terms. You actually had that long-term view of, well, join us, you get equity that will you know, grow a thousand times over that, you know, that journey. Was that the crux of what, what let you hire that great talent? Yeah, I think it was certainly a critical piece of it. And the, certainly the description, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's sort of all of our senior people actually own specific shares. It's not a share option scheme, which is a semantic, but I think an important difference. So they really, they kind of buy the shares and then they kind of have that sense of ownership. I think that was critical to doing that i think it was but for me it was the combination of the sort of that financial piece and then the kind of the non-financial piece and that we always kept this kind of entrepreneurial framework to the business i used to talk a lot about entrepreneurial autonomy in that relative to at least sort of more network agencies larger agencies there was fast decision making just that more collaborative entrepreneurial feel albeit in a little bit of a kind of group structure and i think a lot of people really valued the combination of the two and perhaps if they if they weren't maybe ready to do a pure startup they could see the kind of there's almost the financial upside but also the kind of non-financial attractions as well i'm going to hold on this and we'll we'll come back to acquisitions in a minute It it will weave because it was something I wanted to ask you about the model, because obviously you, as a brand, you are MSQ, you go to market. But as we know, you know, we know Ben, we work with MMT. You, there is also the kind of you know, individual agency brands. And actually, to your point around that sort of entrepreneurial spirit, how did you or how do you make that work when I guess you've got to balance a combination of tensions, don't you, of each person is to an extent going to want to get their business to grow and, and succeed. You also want cohesion across the group. You also, you're going to market as a holding company, as a group and as individual brands. How do you square all of that to give you the all of the upsides, I guess, without the downsides that can come with it? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant question. I, I, and I guess some of this I probably would say I've learned over the last couple of years as well as some of them longer term. I mean, I think the fundamental point, which sounds obvious when you say it, but I think people don't always apply, is that creating a unitary brand does not create a unitary culture. And I look at the last few years, the businesses like Ogilvy and Engine in, in the sort of more marketing communication space who've kind of thought, well, the way to kind of simplify and bring people together is to kind of create a single brand. And I think, you know, on that level, it's it's largely failed because they haven't actually created the unified culture. So what what we've always tried to do is the other way around. And I think that, you know, the first point is that actually, I think tension is actually not a bad thing if it's recognized and managed. Um, and even on a practical level, I've always said, and this is this is probably more of a personal view, and it's sort of not 100% probably shared by even all the management team, is that actually someone who's working in smarts or consumer PR agency, if they're deciding between a kind of new business opportunity that's an MSQ, led opportunity which is kind of you know needs some collaboration and kind of continue to develop um, sort of our work with Johnny Walker or Zalando on a pan-European basis uh, in a sense you've always got to make some choices between how you allocate your time and if ultimately you think your incentives are, are, are better served by focusing on stuff you know, on your own agency I've, I've not really had a problem with that as long as they communicate that appropriately don't do that all you know all the time etc so I find
find that tension actually quite helpful in, in many ways. But then the big things that we've done and we did from an early stage is just, you know, just particularly in your senior parts of your leadership teams and agency teams, you've got to have people whose instinct is to collaborate. And if you don't have that, even if they're fantastically sort of high performers, it's going to infect the rest of the culture. So, you know, we did make some, you know, some reasonably tough decisions early on. In some cases, it was a self-selecting thing. It wasn't entirely on our side where you had people actually were running successful agencies well, but they weren't the right people to kind of fit into that kind of duality and sort of the, the model that we have, which fundamentally is about offering clients flexibility and choice, not imposing our own model on clients, assuming they all want to, you know, one different thing, which certainly in marketing is, is probably the biggest mistake that people make overall. So now it, it was really about kind of, if you get people who are kind of like-minded and want to collaborate, build relationships across people across time. And then uh, more, more latterly, we built more, as we got bigger, you know, more structures around it so certainly having all their capabilities under one roof in a single office sort of having more internal engagers that, that kind of go across agencies these will make a big difference as well so you know i think where we've ended up is actually i think we've got a far more unified culture than pretty much any sort of you know multidisciplinary or kind of multi-agency group that i kind of come across but we still have the kind of strengths from a kind of go-to-market point of view no, it's fascinating and, and your point on culture and I, I, we will we will come on to that later because i think your point of you've got to have the right people at the top who embody that spirit because if you if you don't you can put all the schemes and structures in place you want but if those people leading those agencies and key accounts don't want to collaborate in that way you, you you've lost and i think that this is very much given our audience is is consulting i think there's something interesting in this model for our audience of you know, you highlighted you needed to grow these capabilities and so you you acquired agencies. And I think you know, you've been in the consulting world as, as well as I have. The typical consulting response is, I'll hire a partner. So, you know, similar construct, there'll be an equity element, but I'll hire a partner and the partner will build the team. And I think you're probably one of the only guests I've ever had who sat both sides of the kind of consulting and marketing fence. I'd, I'd love to get your take on why have you gone down the acquire capability as a whole agency route versus we need a, a new CRM play. We're going to hire a CRM partner, for want of a better word. I think it's a really good question. And I, and I would just caveat it a little bit that we have also, over time, added niche capabilities in the sort of probably another overused word of kind of acqui-hire way of where we have brought in a team of three or four people, you know, and sometimes it's been a pure hiring, sometimes it's been a mini acquisition. And and some of those have worked really well. And, you know, so our, you know, our media business in the UK, Walk-In Media, essentially we sort of brought Simon uh, Davison, who used to run Blue 449 and Walk-In Media, and he's built that up behind him and then actually come on to we, we then acquired a business to kind of add scale to that so you know we i fundamentally believe that you've got to look at what's the strategy and what you're what you're trying to achieve and then kind of align what you're doing and the solution is kind of behind it but probably the big thing is and that a lot of um certainly the marketing world but i think it's also true in many parts of the consulting world is that it's quite hard to be credible with four or five people, certainly when you're pitching and serving large multinational accounts. And I think a lot of a lot of acquisitions, even medium-sized acquisitions, do give you that instant scale and credibility. And secondly, as I say, you know, for, for us as a business, we sort of had a mantra quite early on that we wanted to, at the minimum, now gone a long way past it, frankly, thankfully, build agencies that had kind of five million in revenue, one million in profit, and that enabled you to kind of um, sort of deal with the the classic agency phrase of being three phone calls away from disaster type thing by having a more balanced business. So that was that was probably one of the, one of the reasons. But we even now we still try and kind of come back to sort of you know what 
problem we're trying to solve and what's the best solution to do that is it hiring an individual is it an aqua hire is it is it an acquisition and we're, we're definitely deploying the third sort of more so than we were sort of 10, 10 years ago but we're not doing it kind of exclusively well i think a really helpful rounded perspective and, and i'm just curious because you mentioned it, there's those three options and they're the same whether you're a marketing services or a consulting business do you find and there might not be a rule of thumb but do you find there's certain instances where you lean towards a person versus an acquisition for anyone listening is there something that actually that's best served by you know a, a five million rev one million ebit agency acquisition versus an aqua hire versus a you know partner and build the practice I would say, um, you know, as you say, it's not a one size fits all. But what we found, you know, if it's if it's a very niche capability within a broader capability, if that kind of makes sense, then I think the aqua hire or the individual route is generally the better way to go. If you are actually looking to, we we want to get into this area. So, for instance, you know, had we've decided sort of rather than buying MMT that we really wanted to push into the more tech strategy and sort of engineering and cloud development as opposed to more web design and, and build that we had previously, I think that would have been very hard to do with hiring individuals because I think you need a level of breadth of capability to deliver on that. You need a sort of certain level of scale to convince clients, certainly enterprise level clients and frankly you just need a, a level of kind of capability and skill set and even individuals within that that is probably quite hard to to get with it with just a series of hiring so that i think that's probably you know certainly our experience and you know i think in many cases that's that's true although i'm sure there are exceptions that prove the rule as well no definitely and there's something i think and, and this will come in more depth when we dig into culture but you hear a lot of stories about acquisitions and every so often McKinsey or Alamata will put out a report about how many acquisitions fail or these are the things that make them succeed and as someone who's actually done a whole ton of these what are those you mentioned part of it is you need to know what you're looking to acquire and the capability but I suspect you've talked to a lot more firms than you've actually acquired or acquired what are the things that you look out for and for anyone listening think hearing this thing actually i want to acquire a capability or, a, or a, another agency they should be looking out for i guess good and bad you know what are the kind of this could be a great fit and what are the the red flags that make you run a mile no i, I think it's a really good question and i think you know, it depends a bit on the size of the acquisition, but I think there are perhaps general lessons around it. And then ultimately, you know, for us is that, you know, people maybe haven't done this so much sort of think you start from the numbers and the clients and, and sort of what's the shape of the deal and things like that. I mean, fundamentally, what I'm always looking for is kind of, you know, what are the motivations of the people who are, who are kind of, who are actually looking to sort of sell or join the group. And, you know, for us still now, there's normally maximum of, say, 10 people who are the senior leaders of, of the agency or business we're looking to acquire and who maybe have the most kind of financial stake in it and sort of you know really understanding what those guys are, are looking to do is is absolutely key and try and do that quite early on and particularly for us you know what we're looking for is genuinely people who want to stay within the group and see an opportunity of growing faster than within the group than they can on their own and if we don't get that at least from a kind of core of the management team it's quite hard for us to actually decide side that you know it's the right acquisition for us and so one of the things we do and we tend to find is that you know try and put kind of we have a pretty disciplined uh, methodology and sort of sort of type of offer structures that we might put in place we try and do that quite early on because my experience is that on the way in everyone says oh yeah, yeah it's all about the long term it's all about growth etc and then kind of you know actually if you kind of offer only 30 percent of the total value up front and the rest of it in shares or etc those of them who really just want to sort of sell the business for much they can and exit stage left kind of tend to get found out quite quickly 
I think a great piece of advice there of actually, yeah, get get to those numbers quite quickly because you will find that out. And it's a really interesting point, that that long-term piece. And, and I think you've alluded to it, but just for our listeners, it, it, is that for you a typical deal structure? It's it's incentivizing management for the long-term so that you have those aligned interests as opposed to, let's say, here's a pot of cash, we'll see you later in two years. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it's interesting. I've just actually recently gone back and looked at the deals we've done over the last sort of four or five years. And um, while I always say um, our typical structure, which it is, if you generalize it, is kind of, you know, one third of kind of cash up front, one third of, of kind of either deferred or earn out type structure, and then at least a third of what we call roll. So either into pure equity or a mixture of kind of loan notes and equity. <laughs> the funny thing is that no deal has actually quite had that structure, but the principles are there. And what we would never do is we would never buy a business where more than just over a third was kind of just completely committed on conditional cash up front. And then secondarily, the most important piece is there's got to be a material part of kind of equity participation in the ongoing managers to some degree. And they've got to really see the value in doing that. And so every deal we've done has kind of bought people significantly into the MSQ share scheme, as I say, and actually that's been a significant part of the overall package. And the, the, the great thing for me is that, you know, actually for someone who wants to do what they said they want to do, it then gives them the opportunity to not only kind of get value for the business at the, at the time, but also increase that with the value of the share price, hopefully in MSQ going up over, over time. So if you really want to do that and, want, and what you're true to what you say, there should be a really powerful motivation. If in reality, which is a perfectly sensible and fine thing, you actually want to sort of stay for a year and a half and then go do something different, you probably don't want to deal with that structure. No, I think I think it's a great way, like you say, to uncover those true motives. And it's interesting to our conversation around where you started with McKinsey. There are quite a lot of corollaries with that consulting partner, you know, equity partner model, build the firm together, that like you say, you just don't get if it's cash up front or two years cash and then then off. It's a very different culture you build. So Pete, I think this takes us quite nicely onto to culture. And if it pulls us back, you sort of do. But I think something that I'm interested, and again, this is very much for our consulting listeners, because it's quite uncommon in a consulting space, is we talked earlier about there is the MSQ brand and there are the the agency brands underneath. And, and this might flow on from the acquisition piece. But, you know, common, if you pick up a business school book, it says, have a brand, absorb, you know, it's the kind of Accenture model, isn't it? You Everything becomes Accenture. You've, I guess, deliberately done almost the opposite or had that balance. And I'd love to understand almost, it's a twofold, of why have you taken that two level of brands approach, you know, the, the individual agencies at MSQ? And I guess there's a side point of how do you decide who to keep as a standalone agency? You mentioned merging some earlier. How do you decide how, which ones to merge as well? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think you know, f- for us fundamentally, and you know, I, I believed this in 2012, and I believe it still now, is that you know our, our focus of it comes back to the client centricity point is that kind of I wanted to offer clients flexibility and choice. And there's been too much talk in certainly in marketing communications, probably in professional services, as, of saying like we have the perfect model for clients. If if I look at the world of universe that, that we we kind of serve, you know, we serve Unilever on an international basis, and we serve sort of medium sized kind of smaller companies in the UK and you know and we really like the ability that we we can kind of do both. And it was pretty clear early on that kind of some like Unilever hires us for specific things. They want us to do design and branding and maybe intercoms for an individual brand. And then sort of you know sort of Diageo tend to hire us for more kind of our own media capability. The last thing you those two want saying we can do all of your marcoms across every brand, including media and etc. Because they provide that integration and that sort of coordination. And then 
at an MSQ level where they're kind of, you know, probably our biggest level of growth, however, is in a more digitally driven and kind of performance marketing world, you do need to have that kind of more joined up team, probably even more so in the past. And so for, for kind of other clients, particularly if you've got kind of, a, you know, it started off with people who had a marketing team of four or five, when it was much harder to, to kind of bring all that together and managing seven agencies across the piece. And, and so, you know, really that's why we said, well, actually what we're going to do is kind of create different front doors and clients kind of, kind of almost walk through whichever front door is most appropriate to them as an individual client. And in a way, I would argue that's much more client-centric than having the perfect model kind of for clients. So that was always the thinking and kind of remains the thinking. I think what's interesting on the kind of CMO marketing side of the house is that actually as you've moved to a world of, of kind of more digital focused communications is actually having the specialisms is, is actually more important than ever. Because if you're doing a, a sort of global campaign that, yes, has a creative platform and single strategy, but delivers across all social channels as well as earned media and et cetera, you need the specialist in Snapchat who understands what works and the specialist in kind of, you know, Instagram. And you don't get that from the kind of the, the generists alongside it. And then probably the, the last point, which actually probably hits the cultural one more sort of bang on, is that what we've found at least is that people prefer to be kind of recruited and join an individual capability. They love the fact that it's part of a broader group and it creates opportunities. But actually, that we're, we're particularly now able to recruit higher quality people because they're joining something in an area they know, they can see the bounds, they can see and touch the culture rather than something that's maybe a bit more amorphous. I think some fascinating points, and and I I hadn't expected to go here, but your point around client centricity and those those different front doors, it's really interesting, and I think carries across to consulting really well because you know, we work a lot in the boutique consulting space, and actually, the easy sell if you are a boutique consultant is is like you said, we're specialists, we're not you know the big four, we're not generalist, but to exactly your point, sometimes larger clients they need that breadth, and having those different front doors makes a lot of sense. If someone walks through the MSQ front door because it's a global campaign, they need that integrated approach, you've got that, but the same vice versa. It sounds like it works very well, but some of my listeners are sceptical, so I'm going to ask it for them. Does it ever create confusion with clients or tension? And I guess, how how do you manage that if so? If someone walks through the MSQ front door, but actually they wanted the, the MMT front door and they didn't realise it? Yeah, I, I think the second point is easier to answer in a sense that I think, you know, what we try and do is in discussion with the clients in the sense is it's not quite as simple as them just walking through the front door and going, is that you think what is the right setup for them? And if necessary, you know, having that discussion with them. So I'm sure we've made mistakes on that, but I feel like we probably get that right more often than not. And sometimes it's, it's about culture as well to you put in that some people like that within a sin- single agency brand. Some people love the idea of a bespoke team of specialists. But I think on the other side of things, it probably has been more of a challenge. And if I think back to when we first launched the MSQ offer on sort of on top or alongside the agency offer, I think there was a massive um, sort of feeling from a lot of clients, oh, this is complex. It's going to be hard to access. It's not going to live up to its promise because I think people have been a bit, once a bit in type shy around that. So there were definitely opportunities that we didn't convert because everyone just felt, well, actually, this is, this is a complex thing. And that one of the things is when you put up now 11 brand names it does look complicated and i guess you know we sort of learned a bit along the way and if it's more like to be an msq piece i tend to deliberately talk much more about capabilities and downplay the individual brands and probably the biggest thing for us 
is actually getting clients into the agency and that they then see, well, actually, you don't have walls between kind of your individual capabilities. People are, you know, walking around, talking to each other and know each other. So actually, it kind of makes a lot more sense for us. If you see it on a PowerPoint chart again, it's probably does look more complicated. No, you're quite right. And yes, having been to your office, like you say, when you see it, it just looks like one team. But yeah, if you see on a PowerPoint slide, we're going to put these 11 agencies together. Anyone who's ever managed multiple suppliers suddenly probably has a a heart attack at that. Absolutely. And and I think the the team side's again fascinating because something I I know from myself and I I hear from friends who've who've worked in in consulting and marketing is no different is some people like big, big agencies, big cultures. Some people like those boutiques. And actually that fascinating blend of, well, you are part of a small tribe, if you like, in a, you know, it's the crude, it's a bit crude, but the analogy is almost like you're all, you've got these little towns in a country, don't you? And this might come back to the, just the type of people you hire, but you talked about it at a leadership team level and there's incentivization that, that enables people to kind of see the bigger picture. How do you balance those different cultures so that they do truly feel different and independent at the agency level, but actually, throughout from the most junior person upwards there is that consistent msq feel is it just the physical location and and sort of bringing everyone together for like the drinks where we saw each other before christmas or is there other things that you've really had to focus on to do deliberately i think the the co-location is a big difference i mean what i would say is and you know i've sort of tried not to force this is that i think you need to look at certainly the geographic context and um in that it definitely we are more joined up in single culture in London where all of the capabilities are present in the building and elsewhere. In Leeds where we have sort of an agency called 26 has been super successful over 10 years and sort of ultimately kind of performance marketing and web design and build. Until recently when MMT also joined there, they were sort of on their own in that place. And while they did collaborate with kind of other parts of the group, it was less so than kind of the average within the London teams. And so in a sense, they had a bit more 26-ness and a bit less MSQ-ness. And I always thought that was kind of fine. And it sort of, you know, it sort of probably continued as a bit of an evolution rather than a, a, than a, than a fixed piece. So I think kind of for me, at least it's another sort of personal thing, accepting that is quite, a, is, is probably quite important. But then when I look at London, I feel like actually there are, you know, there are, absolutely sort of common threads that sit across them and are probably the agencies might not use the same words to describe their culture but actually the underpinning values are all the same and I think kind of you know I, I look and I sort of I don't see a huge difference in terms of kind of you know you wouldn't even be able to work out I think looking at people or speaking to people which agency they're from unless it was kind of made clear to you. Yeah well and as I say having, having been to your office I couldn't tell in yeah. a good way and I, I think that example is fascinating that sort of 26 that actually the different location you know i i always remember back to my consulting days there's a business around the corner from here actually where there was different cultures on floors and actually physical barriers seem to be the biggest blocker to culture of anything i i, I think you know i mean you know one of the weird things that i've learned and we've learned over the years is that actually just not having people on different floors you know, when we were at our previous office we we sort of made the decision we only had them on two floors but we kind of brought everyone together and one of the real attractions of our current office was having kind of an you know while there are two floors having a single staircase in the middle that just joins the two floors everyone has to walk up coming and lift the same way uh, because unfortunately otherwise people just settle 
excellent habit of kind of going to their floor, sending emails to their colleague downstairs, and you don't get that interaction. No, you're, you're spot on. So I, I, I smile because I, I remember the people on the third floor talked about the people on the ground floor like they're a different species of animal, not, a, not least just a different colleague on a different floor. So I was talking to someone um, on Wednesday who uh, used to work at Dentsu in Japan, and he was saying that they have 72 floors of a building in Tokyo. So wow. that must be a challenge. <laughs> yes, well, what 72 think of one and vice versa must be fascinating. And there's something, I guess this is another part of culture that we talked about the acquisition from a, a kind of commercial perspective and, and, you know, the business functions you're looking to acquire, the capabilities. There's an interesting element to our conversation around culture there as well, because I think it's the same in, in Marcoms as it is in consulting. These are people businesses. The downside from an acquisition perspective of people businesses is they can walk out the door tomorrow. And obviously, having co-location, etc. helps once everyone's in the building. I'd love to know actually how you've honed that approach to give people, I guess, a soft landing. So if you know, you're dropping into the group from a different agency, how you do that in a way that retains people so that they stay and also feel part of the group culture and their own culture? Yeah, I, I think sort of there's, there's probably... It's relevant for hiring and acquisitions again, isn't it? But I think the, probably the other thing do, and I think it was particularly in a, in a acquisition context, but I think it is more broadly is, is spending time with people beforehand and being kind of open and honest and transparent about the kind of, you know, the pros and cons that, that generally exist. So I, I sort of like to think from kind of both cases that certainly at a senior level, if we're bringing someone in, they've had the opportunity to meet 10, 15 people within the kind of group and not just the sort of senior sort of people and the MSQ exec directors, but someone else who's joined, sold their group in and decided to stay, you know, and or someone who's kind of played a similar role and they get the chance to get the kind of, you know, if there is one, a warts and all version of everything. And similarly, I think, you know, so the same thing is true that, I, you know, slightly coming back to acquisitions, I always believe that something is going to go wrong or not going to feel the way it was promised six months in. And so if you kind of just give people as clear a view of what it's going to be like you know, on the way in as you can, you minimize the chance of that being a serious issue kind of down the line. No, I think it's a great point. Like you say, this, being honest and then people can decide. It's better for them to know everything and decide it's not for them at the, before it starts than to massage that and they come in and it's not quite what they they thought, isn't it? 100%. I mean, I, I think the worst thing in any kind of senior hiring or any hiring in any acquisition is that six months later, both of you or either of you think it's not the right thing because then ultimately you both lose on the back of it. Definitely. And I want to turn... Now to actually, I guess, a very different topic, but something I know you're hugely passionate about, or two topics actually, because obviously ahead of this conversation, we were talking about sort of areas that you're passionate about, that MSQ is passionate about. And I know both sustainability and, and diversity and inclusion are two areas that you're really passionate about. And something, and this might be a good place for us to start, you, know, you made the point that actually the marketing Marcom space is a little bit further ahead than if you think of our kind of traditional management consulting industry. Obviously, we have a lot of consultants listening. I'd, I'd love to start by actually getting your take on, on why you believe that and, and almost what is it that Marcoms is doing that puts it ahead of, say, that traditional consulting space. So I, I certainly think it's generally true. And I think for me, the, the two big reasons why actually in a very positive way is that they're kind of driven by staff and clients. And that's what sort of really spurred people into action with a few champions within the community. And so, you know, I, I think from a particularly, say, a sustainability and a DEI point of view that, you know, staff 
staff in certainly all levels within uh, the group, if if we're not seen to be taking this seriously and we're not seen to be championing doing the right thing, they don't want to come and work at, at someone like MSQ, etc. So that was always a real pressure and alongside that from particularly, uh, I would say from a, initially from a DE&I point of view, that the clients recognise that actually they're marketing to a real cross um, section of the UK global population and you've got to have kind of a team that largely represents your consumers ultimately or clients to really maximize the effectiveness of uh, of your advertising your marketing so i think those two things are, as an industry of kind of you know have spurred people into action it's not just pure altruism on the back of it and you know for us having you know a couple of people who've really felt passionately about that and were able to kind of you know devote significant time to it was probably a, also a real yeah, a real driver on the back of it so that those are probably the the big things but I, you know i must caveat and then going back to the, the last time I went to a McKinsey event I mean to be fair that they have with the new sort of global senior partner they've put sustainability in theory at the heart of everything they're kind of doing I think it's sort of you know early days and we'll see how it plays out in practice but I think it's been caught up and I'm you know I've, I think it's fantastic that an organization like that has kind of has taken that kind of stance because if they don't we won't really drive the level of change that, that needs to occur in terms of sort of actually practically doing things and we can maybe delve into a bit more I think that you know a lot of it means on, on the sustainability side it's actually just making initially real commitments of what you're going to do as an organization frankly and then obviously seeing them through and then from the ENI it's actually about being really clear about what you want to achieve uh, and then again kind of putting in a plan in place to, to do that. It's a great point and like you say I think let's dig in because it, it's both topics are really poignant and it might be we need to break them out for this but how do you or how have you sort of set those goals, those plans? Because the sustainability or both sustainability and DEI, almost there's so much you could achieve. In some ways, it's setting both a real, I suspect, setting both a realistic goal, but also sort of defining where you can have success, not trying to change, you know, sustainability, you're not going to change everything overnight. How have you approached that MSQ to, to give you that plan and that roadmap? Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's, you know, really good points and a really good question on, on the back of it. I think from a sustainability point of view, uh, the first thing we did, and and actually, I mean, it sounds like a consulting thing, but it's, uh, I think it really is true for, for everyone is actually you've got to get the kind of measurement process in place because you can't really make any commitments if you actually firstly don't know where you're effectively creating emissions and how much and et cetera, et cetera. And then you certainly can't set meaningful targets on the back of it so I would really you know even for sort of small medium sized businesses um, sort of James Canning's our chief sustainability officer uh, he runs a brilliant course on Beamer that kind of tells and helps agencies take the first steps kind of along the way so you know I I think you know that really important and it still is really important one of the things that I found really helpful in going back probably three four years ago where we really embarked on this journey was also recognising that actually the investment required is not as huge as you think so I think that does put off some people understandably um, in terms of that most small and medium-sized businesses as we were and still are to many degrees you can't just invest a hundred thousand quid in in something that with perhaps an uncertain return and actually you could you could start to make a real difference with a relatively you still need to make a commitment but a relatively modest investment and so having kind of got those two things in place really well you know the first thing we did was to make a concrete commitment to cut our emissions per head by 50 percent within three years we've subsequently gone a bit further than that and you now, ultimately, would encourage people to kind of look at science-based targets and then ultimately make a form of kind of, you know, net zero or sort of um, almost statements and objectives. 
but probably they'd have some building blocks along the way so it's not too far off and it doesn't feel too unachievable. No, I think a great sort of answer. And just so I can science-based metrics, as in you mentioned uh, emissions, something that's measurable in kind of CO2 terms, is that is that kind of what you're... It is, um, but science-based targets as well as an organisation, it's a little bit like B Corp in the sense in, uh, ah, in a, okay. that they will provide you a level of validation as well and um, you know ultimately they'll kind of help drive towards net zero now. And is that the same on the DEI side, sort of setting those objectives and you mentioned, and I'm, I'm fascinated that sort of investment isn't as big as people think. How does that play out as well on that DEI side? Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting, you know, I think we had a really interesting touch on this over lunch as well, that I think it's similar but different. I think and it took us longer to, I think, get this more on track with, with DEI is that you've got to be clear on what your priorities are. And I think slightly bizarrely, I think too many organizations are now still, because the easiest things to measure is your gender and ethnicity mix. And that's important things, important to do, et cetera, but it's only part of the story. And um, I think we both kind of agree that ultimately you, you need to build in genuine diversity of kind of background, diversity of thought, et cetera. And that's actually a harder thing to do in terms of setting objectives that you know you can then kind of see through. And so for us, it was actually took a little bit of time within the DEI council, getting the council kind of set up with the right representation that has a degree of, of kind of, you know, overall championship at different levels of the organization, but actually it's got to be built bottom up. But then we kind of fixed on kind of four priorities, which did include uh, sort of in some cases sort of gender balance and ethnicity, but actually kind of went beyond that in terms of really having specific objectives and techniques to to build that broader level of diversity, which I think is absolutely critical. No, definitely. And, and yes, as we were talking about at lunch, per- personally, I'm a big advocate of social mobility and just because I can. If anyone here has space for five to 10 work experience students from deprived backgrounds this summer, I'm looking to find 30 of them work experience in our industry that could change their lives. So please do drop me a message. And I think your point around actually finding those that you you, you mentioned there, Pete, those initiatives within the kind of, you've got the DNI council, you've got the measures, and you started to actually do some things that are bearing fruit, just because I always love diving into the detail. What are some of those things that have had the bo- most success for you in that DNI space, those kind of initiatives that actually been like, wow, that, that really has moved us forwards? I think actually one of the things, um, which I know a lot of bigger organizations have done, but actually just having kind of almost interest groups within it. So, you know, we now have a, we have a kind of, you know, we've just been launched this week, WSQ, which is kind of women's group at MSQ. We have a kind of um, a, a broader sort of movement for different other kind of interests where they can sort of spend time with each other. And sort of some ways you get things that are perhaps not entirely intuitively coming out of the back of it. So, you know, this week when we launched um, WSQ, we had the kind of technical director on the female side of the FA come and and talk, did a fantastic speech around him. And one of her messages is that actually, as well as kind of all these things, we need to think about equality and setting common standards is you also need to recognize that kind of the different genders are different. And so for her in the Lioness's journey, actually, it was actually about not being trying to set everything up in the same way as kind of the male team. And that was a key part of their success. And I think, you know, that's also, you know, what we all took away was really interesting in in a kind of business context and stuff there are absolutely things you need to kind of level playing fields create common standards etc but you also need to kind of put things in place for everyone that recognizes where there are differences that makes their kind of you know their life um, sort of easier makes their kind of career more rewarding and so that that's been for me a really interesting thing that perhaps we haven't done as well as kind of you know i think some of the more social initiatives a little bit like the one you i think we are brilliantly putting forward have also started to make a difference 
I think a really good point. And actually that, that FAP, so it, it, I'm no expert on this topic, but it, it comes back to that sort of equality versus equity debate, doesn't it? Of equality is everyone has the same policies, procedures, but to your point, men are different from women. And actually, is that equitable if women are all following the way men do it? Because, you know, they're very different. And those interest groups as well, I guess, you know, like myself with social mobility, you're, you're giving people an avenue to their passion and actually change starts with a, a passion. You know, it comes back to why why you join Media Square all the way back. You know, there was that passion to do something different. And it's the same on the DEI space. No, I think that's really, and you know, I would say not particularly by design particularly, but in some ways we've done more, probably initiated more things centrally from a sustainability point of view, certainly kind of targets and things like that. But actually the most interesting things from DEI point of view tend to be almost sort of bottomed up and sort of someone's passion has kind of created a link with a brilliant organization that helps from social mobility. And then that brings into more of a kind of apprenticeship style scheme on the back. Amazing. Well, Pete, we've covered a ton of ground and I'm very conscious you have a busy day after this. I know you've got calls coming up. So I'm going to draw us to a close and I've got a last couple of questions that I ask all of my guests and I am fascinated about both the similarities and differences in these. So the first one is about books. And I should caveat, not everyone reads books. I don't know if you do. So if, if the answer is not books, I'm interested as well. But the question is, what is the book or books that you've gifted or, or have had the biggest impact on you? And, and why is that? Yeah, no, funny enough, this was the one I was probably most worried about because uh, I'm not a big business book reader or uh, et cetera. But it was interesting to think about it. And on the very rare occasions that I have gifted a couple of books over certainly the last 20 years, the, the two that stand out, and actually there's a nice parallel with them as well, is that you know one of which is very much back of the McKinsey days is that the Pyramid Principle, which is by Barbara Minto, I think is a really good, anyone who's going to, you know, has to write stuff, even analyze stuff in the in future, I think it is a great thing but only read the first chapter um, because it does live up to its name and it does actually sort of d- define the key points of the first chapter and you don't need to wait the rest of it and the, the second one is completely different but um, actually sort of initially it was something I was given by James Cannings our chief sustainability officer and then sort of passed on to other people but there's a book called The Unhabitable Earth which just sort of frames at least a potential future uh, in there again I would recommend only reading the first chapter you get a good uh, good sense of the whole thing so those are probably the two that I'd say. So interestingly, at MSQ, there's been more giving and receiving of records than books, which I've also kind of quite liked. And records as in 12 inches? Yeah, 12 or, 12 or 9 inches. Sorry, yeah, seven. As, at 7. As, I can tell you're an aficionado when you when you, you bring up 7 inches. What's the record that's been gifted most so, and why? Uh, it's very bizarre, and this is going to be very niche, but actually it's um, a, a, a record by the Sons of Ping FC, which is um, called Where's My Jumper, um, uh, which has been both uh, shared in both 7 and 12 inches. I feel I've got to ask why that record? It's a quite a niche indie record, which um, sort of one of our kind of creative director in, in Belfast uh, also kind of uh, shared a passion as with I did. And um, and so that was the kind of initial link, as well as kind of weirdly in one of our former agencies had a record collection in it, of which there was uh, one, of, one of the Sons of Pink's albums as well, or EPs. Uh, I love that, the things you learn. And to, to your point around books, I do think I need to update this question for today as well, because I increasingly have, have guests who, like yourself, you know, books aren't the thing, it's it's podcasts, it's YouTube, it's it's seven or 12 inches. I'll be honest, you're the first guest who'd answered with records, but the books as well are fantastic. And I, I think your point is not lost on anyone who reads business books. There's a lot of books where you can get 95% from that first chapter. And I, I think the, you know, the pyramid principle is one of those things that a lot of people 
in business just should read and learn the ability to tell stories. I mean, it comes back to, you know, what we do in marketing, doesn't it? It's telling stories, getting those key points across quickly. It's so powerful, but I always, I, I'm never sure if it's because it's got a McKinsey badge, people think it's a bit scary or what it is, but it's a, such a powerful book. Oh, no, I think you're right. And I think there is a little bit of that. And, you know, it's, in theory, you probably think it's a slightly more dry sort of topic than it might be, but I, I completely agree. And I, I look now at some of the sort of people coming through and in, in a way where they're less used to doing is actually kind of, you know, every presentation is very deductive and it's going through the, and actually sort of, you know, sometimes you need to kind of hit the key messages up front and then kind of build behind them. Well, and I, I think in today's world where, you know, everyone always asks, you know, what's the next, what's the shortest in the TikTok generation? You know, actually that pyramid principle is perfect for TikTok, isn't it? And actually bringing those old ideas to the fore. History always repeats, as we see with 12 inches. I was just wondering, I'm not sure Barbara Minto would probably imagine herself as the <laughs> TikTok generation. <laughs> you, you, you never know. I, I will go and see if I'll find her on TikTok after this. And And the very last question, Pete, and this again, it might be a recap of some of the things we've discussed. It, it might be a new point, but you have three people in front of you and, and I'll let you take this, be it for, you know, your colleagues today in the Marcoms world or, or consulting, but you have someone who's just started their career, that sort of first graduate job. You've got someone who my longstanding listeners must get frustrated with me because I always change this, but kind of middle of their twenties, you know, five, six years in, they've done enough to have options. They've got a bit of a specialism, but they're not senior yet. And then the final person is, in consulting terms, what I say is someone approaching partner. You know, it might be someone at MSQ who's about to take on running an agency or a senior, you know, client relationship. And the question is, what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? Yeah, I mean, I'd probably take a consulting angle on that one, actually, because I think there are some interesting lessons, certainly in, you know, not lessons, but sort of my, applying my experience that I really think when you start off, the, the real benefit I got from consulting, and I think a lot of people got from consulting is, you know, is that breadth of experience you get. I still think there's nothing you can do where you kind of get to learn about as many industries, meet people in different settings. And, and so, I mean, it's an obvious thing, but I do think just trying doing as much as you can. And, you know, all I mean by that is that sometimes you start working with the same group of people and you carry on doing the same things you know in the first few years i think that's more of a mistake because i think you don't necessarily know what you're going to enjoy and i think it's not it's it's kind of often not what you might expect on the way in and then i think as you get sort of you know sort of certainly kind of up sort of close towards part i think probably the the mid stage i think it's probably about really at that point start to figure out you know what you want to do and kind of you know don't get sort of too necessarily swept up in the traditional career ladder and etc do take a bit of time out in what's normally a busy experience to think about you know what's right for you what you want to do kind of you know more medium term and long term and that sort of then segues into this is a very similar thing but it's probably becomes more stark because I, I think you really do have in most consulting firms certainly it was true in McKinsey but I think it's probably true in most places that that period before partner you need to really commit on so many levels in the, the stage beforehand you really probably have to put more of your life and stuff into making that stage for the benefit that kind of comes down the line and just be really sure that you've thought about that's what you want to do versus other opportunities and versus the, what you get kind of down the line and for many people it's kind of worthwhile but it's a, you know one of the things with the consulting is that the, the career path in theory it's not very well defined in the early years but it is very defined when you get to that um, much more than in a bigger organization in, in some ways so I think just taking that time to kind of you know figure out before you then either you know, either commit to it and go for it or you get, go and do something different would be my advice probably slightly longer than it should have been no I think I think some great points but and actually that last point around do you just stop and think because it can seem very easy to that's the next goal but 
if that's going to be your career or your life for the next 10 years, is is that actually what you want? And I think, you know, as, as you're a great example of you, you did some of that thinking a bit earlier in your career, decided I want to do something different. And I think as well have shown that there's more ways to succeed than just make partner in a large consulting firm. But you need to think about that before you're almost trapped into a career that you hadn't thought about. 100%. So, Pete, this has been fantastic. It's been great to have lunch before this, obviously, and, and really enjoyed the conversation. The only last thing to ask is if anyone wants to find out more about yourself, they want to find out more about MSQ, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Sure. I mean, I, I'd sort of, you know, certainly for me, um, sort of LinkedIn is probably the best thing because it's also got kind of links into MSQ and uh, et cetera. And sort of, you know, my LinkedIn handle is linkedin.com forward slash um, in forward slash Peter hyphen read R-E-I-D um, and then one at the end and then from an msq point of view there's a, there's a few things um but sort of certainly um msqpartners.com is a decent starting point um but for those people say interested in sustainability we did um sort of publish um our first uh, sustainability annual report this year as well which you can kind of dive into as well but i, I thought that that would give you a few good ideas about some initiatives you might be able to put in place amazing well pete i think thank you for all of those i'll also include links to those in the show notes so anyone listening if you go to the show notes you will find pete's bio pete's linkedin the website and also the sustainability report so people can dive into those and all that's left to say pete, is thank you i've really enjoyed this and i hope you have a great weekend and thank you very much next it's been great cheers I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.